0: If you have your Bibles, you want to turn with me in Matthew chapter 17. We're going to be in Matthew 17 looking at verse 14 through 21. And it's been said that a man can only fail so many times before something in him breaks. Now, I don't know if that's true about every man or man or women, but there's something that happens to you when you fail. And one of the most important realities that will determine the quality of your life, the quality of your relationships is how do you respond to failure? Failure in your life, failure in the life of those around you, failure in the lives of the people you love. How do you respond when even your best intentions fall short? Now, how do we deal with failure? And that's not just a a question that every single person has to deal with and wrestle with. I mean, this is a question that shapes our society in kind of large macro ways. So you think about like uh, in America, since the war on poverty in the late 60s and early 70s, we've spent 23, this is before COVID, I don't know what the number would be now, but we spent $23 trillion dollars trying to attack poverty. So good intentions. We want to help people who have a need. How can we help? But then you look at like the macro numbers and just the numbers of people in poverty and different things hasn't moved. So good intentions, but has it helped? Or you look at like school, we're in a school and the state of Florida gives $12,000 a year for every student. And then the numbers of like educational attainment continues to decline. So what do you do? And good intentions, like you want to help, but it doesn't seem like it's making a difference. Or you think about failure, just at a personal level, like one of the most painful things you can experience is when you're watching someone you love hurt, and there's nothing you can do about it. Like they're going through physical pain, and you can't stop it. They're going through emotional pain, and like you can't touch it. They're making life choices that you know are destructive, and you can't change it. So you're just watching failure unfold, and you're just helpless. It's like, what do you do in the moments where you just feel helpless? Now, we're going to see where we are in Matthew chapter 17, what Jesus is doing, the broad section... he's laying down the blueprint for how he wants to build his house. He's going to build his church, and in 16, it's a foundation that's built on a confession about who he is and a commitment from his people to follow him. That's the foundation. And then in 17, he moves to, all right, here's the weekly rhythms, the rhythms of your life. And you're meant to, uh, one day a week, ascend the mountain into his presence to hear his voice encounter His glory, come into His presence, and then you're meant to go out down the mountain the other six days with His power. So it's one day into His presence, then out into the world with His power. And so last week we looked at, like, what does it mean to come up into His presence? And that a, was a really important sermon to think about why we worship the way we do, its structure, what's our point. But today we're going to think about, all right, what happens when we go out into the world with his power, and what we have is a story of failure. His people in the broken world, and they, they can't help. Like, he sent them to help, and they can't. So what we see, like, on the mountaintop, you encounter the glory of the sun, and you hear his voice, but then you go down the mountain, and you encounter all of the brokenness of the world. You enter into a demon-infested world that's destroying people. And in this story, children. So what do you do? And so this story is all about how Jesus must heal our inability to heal if we're going to bring his power into the world. So let's read it, picking up in verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, so this is Jesus and then Peter, James, and John. They've been up the mountain. Now they've come down. And when they come to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and they said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So this is all about how do you deal with our helplessness to help people? How do you deal with our failure? How do you deal with uh, the times where we want to do something but don't have the power Kind of the key word that runs through this, you can see it in verse 16. Look in verse 16 where it says, um, And I brought to him your disciples, and they could not. And then in 19 and 20, the, the word, it, it doesn't come through in English because the word used here is the word ah, so a negation, ah, not, no. And then the word dunamis, kind of where we get our word dynamite. So there's no power. And then you can see in verse 16, I brought him to your disciples, but they no power to heal. And then you can see in verse 19 when they say, but then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why did we no power to cast it out? And then in verse 20, Jesus gives them the promise, uh, 21. uh, You'll say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be no power for you. You'll have power for it, and nothing will be no power for you. See, so it doesn't come very good. That's not good English, but you got to smooth it out. So this is a question. What does it mean? Um, what do we do when we fail? What do we do when we don't have power? And what we see in this passage is that there's three pictures of power, powerlessness Three pictures, three different people who are dealing with the failure in a different way. And then we're going to hear three words of power from Jesus. But first, let's look at the three pictures of powerlessness. And as we do, every single person in this room will be able to identify with one of these people. I'm willing to bet that everyone is in one of these Uh, boats, or one of these images. So three pictures of powerlessness. Or you'll be able to sympathize with one at least. So let's look first at a desperate father. Just when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him, he said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and suffers terribly. And often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. You have this desperate father. I love this story and comparing it to the other gospels. It's one of the ones that's in Luke and Mark as well. This picture of this father who's just desperate and he's brought... The son to the disciples with hope. And so you have this father who is who's desperate. He cries out for mercy. So can you sympathize with someone like this? Do you know what it's like to watch someone you love self-destruct before your very eyes and you you can't do anything about it? You can't stop them, you can't help them? I mean, can you sympathize with the hyper anxiety that he would have felt all the time? Notice, it says that he often falls into the fire and often into the water. Now, when would he be around fire and water? All of the time. Like, you cooked on fire. So every single meal is an opportunity for anxiety. Every single meal that child eats, the father is anxious. Is something going to happen to him at this moment? I mean, can any of you parents sympathize with that? Or when could he fall into the water? They lived on the Sea of Galilee all the time. I mean, like, have you ever been around, like, children who can't swim and then you get around water? How uh, anxiety-fueling that is? And so this father just lived in a constant state of anxiety, wondering, is this going to be the moment where he utterly destroys himself, And the father is distraught and that he'd heard his reputation. And I just wonder what was going through his mind when he decided to try and go track down Jesus and find his disciples and to bring his son to see if they could help him. I mean, did he hear rumors and stories of this traveling teacher who spoke like no one else spoke? And if you could just touch him. People said you would never be the same, and all the hope that it, it generated in his heart, if I, can just, if I can just get him near my son. But then he comes, and his hopes are dashed. Another disappointment. Another dream where maybe he can be healed, and it doesn't work. I mean, can you sympathize with this man? Watching someone who you love just implode and there's nothing you can do about it, hope dashed again and again and again. But then you have the sun. Can you sympathize with the sun? Now the word that translated, you know, either epileptic or seizures. You know, don't kind of don't think medical context like a you know medical seizure. Uh, literally, this word would be moonstruck. But the idea is where we get like lunar, lunatic. So the idea is that this, this is somebody who's lost all control of themselves. They can't control themselves. And it gives a picture of self-destructive behavior. They're intentionally throwing themselves in the fire, intentionally throwing themselves in the water. It's self-destructive behavior. You know, we would probably frame this as thinking things like, you know, somebody, uh, you know, what happens to someone when they just lose, they lose control? They lose it. Or uh, bound by addictions or compulsions or obsessions. Or they're going to mutilate or destroy themselves. You know, it's interesting to compare this to Mark because Mark really focuses on the cosmic battle between Christ and the demons. And uh, Matthew has a different emphasis, but you can still, you can still see that focus and can you sympathize with the son? Like do you know what it's like to be caught in self-destructive patterns and behaviors and you don't know how to get out of them? Like do you know what it's like when you start feeling the shame is fueling you to withdraw and you know the more you, withdraw, the more you withdraw the more you withdraw the more you're going to wound and harm those around you but you can't you can't stop? You know, do you know what it's like to have anger that just gets out of control? Or lust that's out of control. Or a gossiping tongue that's just out of control. Or desires you can't control. Do you know what it's like to be taken over by passions? You know, I always think it's, you know, interesting. You have, um, like Paul tells Timothy, you know, Timothy, flee youthful lusts. And most of us probably have a certain category that we think Paul's talking about. What are the youthful lusts that a young man should flee? It's every man's battle. And then... But what Paul's actually talking about is the youthful lust to assume that you're always right and to be argumentative. Do you know what it's like to have that passion where you think you're always the one who's right and the smartest person in the room? And it's destroying people around you. Do you don't know what you can do at any moment. You could blow up any moment. You could give in. And here, what we see for this song is that Jesus is Lord over the demonic, no matter what you call it. And however it occurs... But can you sympathize with this boy? Do you know what it's like to be destroying yourself and wounding those around you? But then the third group of the helpless, look at the helpless helpers. And this is really the focus of the story. It's on the disciples. Notice how the disciples fail. I mean, don't you hear the agony in the father's voice in verse 16? I brought my son to your disciples and they could not heal him. They couldn't help me. And then notice what they've done. I mean, they've already in Matthew been given authority over demonic spirits. They've been involved in several miracles. But here, they're publicly embarrassed. There's this large crowd and everyone sees their failure. And look in verse 19, they go behind closed doors, get alone privately with Jesus, and they need to have a debrief session. All right, why did that go that way? Look at that question. Why could we not cast it out? That's because why were we adunam? Why were we no power? Why do we have no power? And what I love about their posture is that's the right posture when you failed. I mean, the right posture is not to blame shift or excuse make or to point fingers. That's the right posture. Why could we not do it? Why were we unable? So, I mean, can you sympathize with them? I mean, do you know what it's like to, with the best of intentions trying to enter into a situation and you really want to help and then it seems like everything just unravels and you almost make it worse? You know, my uncle used to joke that no good deed goes unpunished. So you try and help someone and then it just somehow turns out bad for you and them. And can you sympathize that we want to help but it doesn't seem to be working? So what can you do? So there's three pictures of powerlessness, but look quickly at three words of power. Jesus' three words of power. First, notice the word of critique in verse 7. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Like, you hear that? Like, that's Jesus. Like, I hear that, and I'm like, wait, wait, wait. Like, I can sympathize with Jesus because I can understand what it's like to lose your cool and be like, how long am I going to have to deal with it? You knuckleheads, stop it. How long? How many times do I have to tell you? But I don't think I'm being very godly when I do that. But here's Jesus. So, like, he, I mean, does he lose his cool? I mean, listen to this critique or complaint. Like, what's going on here? Now notice he has two primary um, lines of critique. He critiques them for being faithless, and then critiques them for being twisted or perverse. The words are perverted. So twisted and perverted, tw- uh, perverse. And then notice he has two questions: How long? How long am I going to be here with you, my presence? And then how long am I going to have to put up with this in my endurance? You're testing my patience. And I just wonder, like, what, what's happening uh, here? And I wonder maybe if, you know, he recognizes that he's about to depart and they don't have a lot of time to get their hacks together. But even as you think about it, look, look at the critique. Like, who's he actually critiquing? I mean, I always just thought this was a critique to the disciples. But then more I read it, I said, well, is who is the critique? You know, he says, this generation, this generation... And now everywhere else in Matthew where he says this generation, he's talking to people uh, who are unbelieving, like scribes, Pharisees, religious leaders who are attacking him. He's using the context of judgment coming on a people who refuse to listen to him. So it's like, all right, who is this generation? Is it the disciples? Because, you know, he accuses them of being faithless. But then in just a minute, he'll tell the disciples their problem is they have little faith. So it's not they're faithless, it's just little So who is the faithless generation? And then what was the faithless act? What was the act that was faithless? Was it proven that they were faithless because they couldn't do it? Or was it proven that they were faithless because they tried to do it without him? Would faith have been, all right, let's wait, wait till he comes, because you need him, not us, and our whole job is to direct you to him? Was that the faithless act? Or is it just talking, you know, to the whole kind of crowd? You know, the whole crowd, this is Israel. These are the people of God. These are the people who think they're the holy ones, blessed by God, the children of Abraham. So who is this faithless generation? You know, I wonder if he's just not making a critique about you're living in a world, you're living in a context that's faithless and twisted, and in a context as faithless and twisted, it's the children that get destroyed. So I wonder what he would say if he came into this generation. You know, what would he say about us? Are we a faithless, twisted generation? All right, so that's his critique. And then notice his command. He's got two commands. Notice the first one: bring him here to me. You know, this is the this is the solution. This is the goal. The only place help can be found is you bring him to me. Now, a few chapters earlier, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, there's 5,000 people. They have no food. Uh, He tells the disciples to go gather as much as they can. And they said, all we've got, five loaves, two fish. And he says almost an exact line. There's just one letter difference. Bring them here to me. And then here he says, bring him here To me and it seems that no matter what the problem is whether it's insufficient resources or broken destructive health this is the solution bring him to me and then notice what Jesus does and Jesus in verse 18 rebuked the demon he rebuked the demon he didn't rebuke the boy he rebuked the demon And one of the things, I think this is a very profound word for us because we have to figure out how to rebuke the demon but not the boy. He rebukes the demon and not the boy. And the boy can't define himself by the demon. That's not who he is. He needs to be freed, set free from the demon. And so Jesus, his commands, bring him to me, and then he rebukes the demon. And then notice the word of clarification. He clarifies for the disciples. They come and they say, why couldn't we do it? Why, why did we fail? Why couldn't we help the one who came to us for help? And notice he gives them, he, he clarifies, all right, well, here's the problem. The problem, notice what he says, is because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, You'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it'll move, and nothing will be ah uh, dunamis. Nothing will be no power. Impossible for you. So the problem is because of their little faith. They don't believe. And when you read through the Gospels, you, know, you see that often Jesus' sharpest, kind of most intense pain, and the deepest source of his complaints is how little real faith he sees among the people around him. But then you think about this problem like that diagnosis could it really be that simple is it i mean it's pretty simple your powerlessness is because of your faithlessness like could it be that simple you know we often want to locate the the problem in more external locations like well the problem is is my temper it's my weakness, it's my habits, it's my addictions, it's my lust, it's my mood, it's my vanity, it's my chemical makeup, it's my psychological conditioning, it's uh, my family of origin. Put the the location of the problem somewhere else. But notice what I said, the problem is your faithlessness. I mean, could it really believe that all the bitter fruit that we see from our failure ultimately is rooted... In a lack of belief. Like, we don't believe God. Now, this is the fifth time in Matthew that Jesus has critiqued the little faith. And it's interesting to look at all the different times where it comes up and see. I wonder if there's a thread running through. You know, the first time he critiques them in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Why are you so anxious? I mean, look at the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven. You know, how much more will Jesus or God, your heavenly Father, clothe you? Don't be so anxious about what you'll eat and what you'll wear, oh, you of little faith. So anxiety is a fruit of little faith. And then in Matthew chapter 8, when they're afraid because there's a storm and he's asleep, and they're like, wake him up, don't you care, we're going to die? And then he says, why are you afraid? You of little faith. So their panic, fear, their response in fear to a situation is because they have little faith. And then in 14, when Peter, another storm where Peter sees Jesus and when Peter says, Lord, if it's you, call me out. And Jesus says, come. And Peter steps out to walk in the waves and says he looked around and starts to sink and he cries out. And then Jesus grabs him and he says, oh, you have little faith. Why do you doubt? So little faith, it's all wrapped up in fear, anxiety, doubt. In chapter 16, it's because they don't understand what he's teaching him, so they don't understand and they're arguing, and he critiques their little faith. So you see, it's all wrapped up in these things. So the problem is our little faith. Then what's the solution? Now notice he says the problem is you have little faith, but the solution is if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed. No, wait. The problem is little faith, so the solution is a little faith. Like, that doesn't make sense. It seems like the solution and the problem are the same thing. The problem is you have little faith, but if you only had a little bit of faith the size of a mustard seed, wait, how does, how does that work? What's the relationship here? You know, I think there's some wisdom of connecting this to Mark, because in Mark's gospel, what Jesus highlights is their problems that they didn't pray. They were prayerlessness. And then in Matthew's gospel, he focused on their faithlessness. And we kind of joked at the, the, uh, our church congregational meeting, you know, which is it? So that they were prayerless or they were faithless? And of course, the answer is both. Those are the same thing. And as you see, the dynamic is they're supposed to go up into the mountain to listen to him. And then they go down out in the world. And if they're going to live for him, they have to talk to him. And so the faithlessness means they're not living out what they actually believe. You know, here's the great call. You have to listen to him, and then you live like you believe him. And so think about your own life. I mean, do you live like you really believe that he's going to come back and he's going to raise the dead to life? Like, do you live like you really believe that He's able to restore the weary? He's able to heal the broken. He's able to bind up the wounded. He's able to empower the weak. He's able to guide the perplexed. He's able to comfort the anxious. Do you live like you really believe these things? You know, it's not if your faith is the size of a mountain, you'll move mountains. If your faith is the size of an apple, you'll do apple-sized things. There, it's, there's not a correlation between the result and the, the the size. So if your faith is the size of a mustard seed, you'll move mountains. But now here's the question. All right, so imagine you're like Jesus's literary agent or editor. You're his literary editor, where you're going to help him with his rhetorical. Panache, you know he doesn't put things in threes that start with the same letter. So we need a little work on his teaching skills. So you say, "Oh, I love the metaphor. I mean, you got a beautiful metaphor: mustard seed, mountain. All right, there's at least it has a ring in English. I don't know what it is in Greek, but we all right, we got a ring. Um, but let's 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 harmonize the metaphor. And why don't you say, if your faith is the size of a pebble, you can move a mountain." Don't you see? It's, 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 the metaphor is more beautiful. You have the rock, the mountain, it, it sinks up. What do you think he might say to you? I mean, he might say, listen, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm talking about. Because the point is not the size of the faith. The point is that it's alive. It's living. It's faith that is alive. That's what gives it its energy, its power. Rocks aren't alive. It has to live. The point is not the size of your faith, it's whether it's alive. And who's it's anchored in. And then notice the promise. I mean, what a promise. If your faith is the size of a mustard seed, you'll be able to say this mountain move from here to there and it will move. And there's our word again ah, do it, no power. There's nothing you will not have power for, there's nothing that will be unable for you. And he just says, like, what? like, is he serious? Is this a real promise? Like, is he promising omnicompetence? I mean, this is mind-blowing. What is he trying to tell us? I mean, I think what he wants his disciples to do is to cease groveling in their shame and inadequacy because of their failure. And he wants them to believe that even though their faith is small, that their weak prayer just throbs with power. So you think, All right, what kind of power is promised There's nothing that's impossible for you. Does that mean now, by faith, I can leap tall buildings in a single bound? Or by faith, I can learn French without ever studying? Or by faith, I can have six-pack abs even though I'm on the uh, devil daily donut diet? (laughs) Is, Is that what he's promising? What kind of promise is he actually giving us? You know, Jesus will attack the religious leaders in Matthew. He says, your problem is you don't know the word of God or the power of God. So what kind of power does he promise? You know, Paul celebrates the gospel because it's a power. But what type of power is it? What type of power do we have? What type of demons can we defeat? What type of brokenness can we heal? You know, Paul will sing and celebrate now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all you could ask or think according to the power at work in us. So do you believe that? Like, do you believe that he is able to do? Not you are able, he is able. So what type of power can we experience? So let's go back, let's imagine you're one of the three. Where'd you locate yourself? So let's imagine you locate yourself as the father. You find yourself in a situation where you're just looking around and "I I, I don't know what to do. Like, I am utterly helpless. I do not know what to do. Where does the power come from to keep going? Just keep going. You know, when we were at our church in uh, in Corn, it was Corn Creek Baptist Church in Bedford, Kentucky, and a small country Baptist church, and one of the things, uh, Cynthia, I, you know, we we're trying to very gently, kind of slowly weed out some of the uh, I don't know how to say it. Um, not so great songs that were sung during the worship and kind of infuse Maybe songs that are a little more theologically sound, biblical, and you know, you get in certain places, like, you know, country southern gospel. Some of the musics, its a sacrosanct. And so we're trying to slowly, and then, you know, there's just a couple songs that weren't necessarily bad. They weren't like, you know, this is a bad song. Uh, one of them was In the Garden. Does anybody know In the Garden? You know, uh, and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me that I'm a, I'm his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there is like none other I've ever known you know, in the garden. Uh, that was one of the ones we kind of were trying to weed out. Because I mean, it's not necessarily bad. It's just kind of theologically, oh, it's just sentimental, I mean, you know. And so we had one Sunday school class where we were talking to the, you know, the different uh, elderly ladies in our church and uh, asked, like, how come we hadn't sung In the Garden in a while? I was like, well, you know, and I started to, you know, it's not that we're trying to, you know, and I've kind of fumbled through, you know, some answer about how, you know, wasn't all that great. And then Mary Hilton looked at me and says, well, I don't care what you say, that got me through. Six years before that, unexpectedly, her husband died. She had two boys. Three weeks later, her oldest son, just been married two years, brand new baby, son and wife, killed in a car wreck. So within three weeks, she finds herself a widow and now responsible for an infant and she said it'll be in the middle of the night, and that baby's crying, and I'm standing over uh, the crib. <laughs> and she said, The only thing that got me through was he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I'm not alone. <laughs> we, uh, we got in the car to drive home, but I said, we will sing in the garden every month from now until we leave. Because we will remind Mary every month of that mustard seed truth that brought her through the darkness. And then six years later, when we were trying to fundraise for to get... Grace Lake Nona off the ground, and we had to raise $150,000, and Phil court to me and said, we were terrible at that, and to me, might as well said, you got to raise f- $5.8 million. and so we started trying to do that, and you know, the first check we got was a $50 check from Mary Helton. We almost didn't cash it. We did, <laughs> but we thought about not cashing it and just saying, this is a mustard seed that's proving, do you believe... So you like the father, or you like the son, do you know what it's like to feel you can't break free? That you need him to break you free from a life filled with contempt and anger, or a life filled with dominion to, to lust or relational disgust or break you free from lives that's dominated by the need to control others or break you free from holding grudges and and not being able to love enemies or bless those who curse you or a life set free from the need to perform or the free from anxiety and trusting in money and possessions or free from trying to manage others and condemning and judging. Do you need to be broken free from those things? I mean, that whole cycle I read is just what Jesus says He'll break us free from in the Sermon on the Mount. Come to me if you want to be free. Are you like one of the disciples? where you're called to go out into the world, these six days, and you're called to bring help. You're called to bring healing. You're called to bring hope. You're meant to, to do something, and you, you don't know what. You don't feel like you have power. You don't know how to connect your Sunday to your Monday. You're called to go into the world, but you need his help to survive there. Which one are you? And what you need is to believe. To go to him. I love how this father responds in Mark because Jesus, he says, if you can do anything to help my son, will you? And Jesus says, if. All things are possible for those who believe. And he says, okay, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me. I want to. And So that's how we cry. I believe. Help my unbelief. So let's pray. Lord, we praise you for the power of your word and your son. We praise you that no matter what situation we find ourselves in that we can cry out to you we can come to you for help so i pray there's anyone who finds himself in a situation like this father or like mary helton where they feel like their whole world has just unraveled and they do not know what to do we pray that you would give them a mustard seed amount of truth and that truth would hold them and sustain them and propel them forward Pray for if anyone is like the sun where they know they're, they're destroying themselves and they don't know what to do. They feel like they can't stop. Pray that your word would come with power and help them to believe and be set free. And I pray for anyone in this room who feels like the disciple. They, they want to do good in the world, but so often they don't know what to do or where to go or what to say. I pray that you would encourage them and empower them. And this we ask in Christ's holy name, Amen. You know, now is the time in our service. We have a dynamic back and forth where we celebrate what God has given to us. So now is the time where we think about what we offer back to Him. Um, Our offering is our opportunity to give back to Him just a portion of what He's blessed us with. In some ways, we say here is a token of our life's work as we say thank you. And there's a couple different ways here you can give. You can give electronically. You can give in the box that's uh, out there. But as you do think, our what are we giving to him in gratitude and then we take communion because we're celebrating what we've received from him in thankfulness so on the night that he was betrayed he took the bread and he broke it and he said this body or this bread represents my body that's broken for you and the bread is symbolic into our weakness into our brokenness this is what comes to fill fill the gap this is what comes to bring the healing and then he took the cup, the wine, and he poured it and said, this cup represents my blood that's shed for you. And this represents my presence. I am here. I am with you. And this is what you need. So take the remembrance of you. Now stand and receive the benediction. May the love of a dying Savior, the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this week, forever and always. Amen. Go in peace.